issues of property. And what about the economy? What is ownership? Is this appropriate? Goods. Properties. Commodification. Ownership. Property. Appropriate. In this episode, our guest is Jean-David Gerber. Um, Jean-David Gerber is Professor of Political Urbanism and Sustainable Spatial Development at the Institute of Geography at the University of Bern in Switzerland. And uh, he has worked and works on land use planning, also on housing policy, on the commodification and decommodification on, of resources, on land grabbing and on regional developments. We invited Jean-David to join our series on the one hand to think property from Switzerland, but we hopefully also go a tiny bit beyond Switzerland and also to include a perspective more focused on regulation and planning. Jean-David, thank you so much for joining us. Um, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much, Anna and Uh, Marcus, it's a real pleasure to be here uh, with you today. Great to have you, uh, Jean-David. So to cut right in, uh, could you please clarify your understanding of property and how you approach it? Yes, thank you. <laughs> this, this is a, a big question. I think the first thing that needs to be said is that I'm not alone uh, on this journey studying property, but uh, basically I could maybe start by explaining a bit, explaining a bit who inspired me also theoretically. And the first thing that I would say is uh, that there is no uh, single author. There, there are multiple. The, the literature um, on property does not only cross disciplinary boundaries, it also crosses geographical uh, boundaries. Property has different meanings depending on the geographical location. And one major difference I think that uh, we can observe is between Anglo-Saxon countries which are organized according to the principle of common law and continental Europe, which has legal systems based on, on a civil code. Now, of course, um, in academia, uh, the discourse is dominated by the English language. Much of the concepts about property in the scientific literature is somewhat connected to the Anglo-Saxon perspective to it. That is basically to common law. Probably uh, that many English speaking scholars do not even notice it because they are in this dominant position. And this does not make the life of, of geographers or other non-legal disciplines working on property easy because uh, there are lots of differences between common law and uh, civil law. Could you go a bit into detail explaining these differences? Yes. Uh, 
for example, you know, the difference between ownership or uh, property. We don't have this distinction in, in French or in, in German. Then there are many institutions of common law that do not even exist in continental Europe and vice versa. A trust, it's something that we uh, hear often about, is, do, is, is not something that we know in, in civil law. The idea also that the lands, you know, ultimate, ultimately belongs to uh, the king of England, such as it is the case in, in, in countries of the Commonwealth, is, is very strange to us. Even concepts uh, like the bundle of rights uh, comes from common law countries. It's been introduced now in civil law countries, but but this, this understanding uh, is is not a common law uh, is not a, a, a civil law understanding so words do not mean the same in other languages property is not propriété in french it's not eigentum in in german the meanings uh, behind the words are are different and i i remember as a phd student it took me quite a while to realize that. I was reading text in English and not fully understanding what they were referring to. And because the language, the English language is so dominant, English speaking scholars uh, often take their own reality as granted. So this is a bit to say that as a young researcher, I spent quite a lot of time reading also the French speaking scholars. In, in law, I read, uh, you know, Francois Ost in legal anthropology, Etienne Leroy, many others. I'm not a, a legal scholar, but I find it very interesting also to read the law. The, the, the law is, is the product of a socio-political compromise. It's crystallizes uh, in space, in, in time, the, the, the complex power relationships um, about our environment and about how resources are to be used. So, so my understanding of, of property is uh, connected to the law, but it's not the only discipline I'm interested in. My, my background lies in human geography with uh, strong influences from public policy analysis, ecological economics, institutionalism, and also social anthropology. So there, there are many of these different authors from dif different disciplines that uh, shaped my understanding of, uh, of property. And here, I think original institutionalists, they are also sometimes called old institutionalists, uh, played a major uh, role. The, the founder of old institutionalism is, of course, John Commons, uh, Veblen, Thorstein Veblen, and Wesley Mitchell. But there are also more contemporary scholars who are called, you know, old institutionalists or original institutionalists. And one of them is Daniel Bromley uh, and I kind of rely on his understanding of, 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 of property. Then there are not only the old institutions, but also the new ones, new institutionalists, and they also played a major role. So Elinor Ostrom and her followers uh, play, uh, I would say, a structuring role 
in my in my research, but simultaneously her work also raises raises lots of question, you know, to a to a geographer, to a to a social scientist. So this is what was a bit of an introduction, and I think this makes it possible to go back to your question: What is my understanding of 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 property? My understanding builds on 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 that. My my understanding of of property is a relational understanding, and building on on Daniel Bromley, um, I see property as a triadic social relation. It connects basically the user uh, with the state and third parties. Bromley talks about property as a as a benefit stream, or he, he also uses the word income stream. And then the property right is a is a claim to uh, this benefit stream that some higher body, it's usually the state protects against other who may uh, interfere with it. So with, with this definition, and property is not the object, property is the relationship, and it's not the relationship between the owner and the object, it's the relationship between uh, the user, the state, and third parties. And I think this is really interesting because it shows that understanding property relations is not limited to the owners. Uh, it includes a whole range of relationship. It's the relationship between the owner and the non-owner. I think this is very important. It's also the relationship between the owner and the state. And it's the relationship between the state and the non-owner. All of these relationships are part of the, the, the property. Uh, relationship. Could you say a bit how space plays out in this relationship? Because you were also speaking before that your understanding is a particular geographical one. So how does the geography define this relationship between these three parties? So um, I think space and time uh, play a very important role here. So this this relationship and the way it is protected by uh, this. So the resource itself is usually you know spatial. So it's a it's a piece of land. It's a it can be a forest. When I say resource, it's a quite broad understanding of it. Uh, urban land is a resource. Housing is a resource. The forest is a resource. Many resources are also man-made, uh, etc. But most of the resource. Uh, have some spatial dimension. And then uh, there is a relationship between this, this uh, spatial object and the uh, owner that the state accepts uh, to uh, protect. And there again, space plays a role because as we said, depending on the countries you are in, this, this relationship is protected diff differently more strongly maybe in Switzerland than in, in other countries, uh, etc. But, but then space plays a role, but also time. And I think uh, this is also part of my understanding of, of property. Property uh, has not always existed and does not exist everywhere, I would say. In the Middle Age, 
in Europe, there was a system called Plura Dominia, which was fundamentally different from property. The feudal system is characterized by a pyramidal system of uh, lords, the, you know, the suzerain and subordinates, the vassals. And so on the same plot of land, you had a, superpos a superposition of rights. You could have somebody having a right to use the water, another person able to use the forest. There were temporary uses, for example, to collect the acorns in the fall to feed your pig, the right to collect firewoods, etc. So all of these different persons could have a right on a given plot of land. Obviously, the system was extremely uh, complex, but this system uh, was not based on, on property. I can also take examples from, from uh, Ghana, where local chiefs are supposed to be custodian of the land. So they're not a landowner, they're custodian of the land. However, now due to legal pluralism, many of them try to depict themselves as owners of the land. And this, of course, is a big shift from custodian to a landowner. We can maybe discuss that uh, later if you're um, interested. So I think many societies uh, are not based on, on property, but on possession. And this is, a, I think, an important distinction, the distinction between possession and uh, property. It goes back to scholars like uh, Heisel and Steiger. Uh, possession is the effective control over a thing. It's, possession is also defined in the civil code. It's defined in the Swiss civil code, for example, as the effective control over a thing. So there is no triadic relationship uh, here with the state or we're with third parties. Uh, if, if you have possession, you just uh, have the control. You take what you need in the environment for your personal consumption. The focus is on, on the use of, the no of, of an object. It's If you don't use the object, then you give it back. You don't accumulate, you don't mortgage your piece of land. Um, etc. So possession, a regime of possession is a fundamental difference, different, is fundamentally different uh, from, from property. So this makes it possible now uh, to define property. Uh, and uh, as, I, as I said earlier, um, I, I rely on, uh, on the law first to look at how it is defined. What does the, the civil code uh, tell, tell, tell us about property? We can take the Swiss um, civil code. It's defined in article 641. It says, the owner of an object is free to dispose of it as he or she sees fit. So the civil code tells us that a property right is the right to dispose of the object that you own as you think it is right or uh, appropriate. And 
This is isn't this isn't this more proximate to what you previously defined as possession? No, it's I mean uh, it's 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 the abs I mean the civil code is from the state, so the state acknowledges that some individual have the right to uh, dispose of an object of the environment as they want, and this is the absolute definition of property. It's it's summarized. Uh, maybe you're familiar with this Latin formula: usus, fructus, and abusus, right? So the, the right to use a resource is uh, is usus. The right to appropriate the returns, the fruits of the resource is uh, fructus. And uh, the right to change it, to change its form, to change its substance, or to sell it or transfer the resource, is uh, even to destroy the resource, is um, abusus. The, the transfer dimension here is very important, abusus, because it's uh, it opens the door to money creation, right, through mortgage. So land can become a collateral to borrow money from the bank. And this is a key mechanism of capitalism. This is, this is why property is a key institution of uh, capitalism. And it's why it's very different from plura dominia in the Middle Age. Or, or customary uh, lands in in uh, Ghana. J just to make things clear, uh, I didn't quote the entire article 641. The, the article says, the owner of an object is free to dispose of it as he or, she or she sees fit, but then adds within the limits of the law. And, and this is, I think very important. The property rights protects the interest and the freedom of the landowner, but in reality, this absolute property right does not exist. Absolute property is, is a myth or a fantasy because in reality, it is also shaped by the law. It is shaped by the state, by public policies, which uh, are there to protect also the public interest and i think this is this is basically my understanding of property uh, these two layers you have one layer uh, or two layers of legal constraint on the one side you have the public policies uh, such as you know planning agricultural policy etc and on the other side you have property the titles such as they are defined in the in the land register and the cadaster and these two layers basically function according to a totally different logic the property rights they protect the private interest against the state and the public policies they protect the general uh, or the public interest the property rights are quite permanent they hardly ever change in their definition the public policies they keep on changing, you know, according to political majority uh, majorities, etc. But but both of them uh, impact the way uh, you can use the resource, and this creates a tension between the individual and the collective, between the private interest and the public interest, between property property law and uh, public policies. And this is what I find so interesting in the in the notion of property.
So what you've already uh, started to develop relates to, to what I understand um, the institutional resource regime framework to uh, elaborate on or to build on. And uh, it's a framework that you've been uh, working on for for many years now that you've been uh, developing with with colleagues. And uh, so precisely one of the insights is to look at the combined effect of public policies and, and property rights on uh, resource users and, and users. Um, so, so could you maybe to to give it uh, a clearer contour, elaborate uh, on this a bit further, and and maybe distinguish this from other relational uh, property approaches that we've also uh, come across throughout the series uh, in in previous conversations with Nicholas Blomley, for example, or Vera Smirnova. Yes, the, thank you very much for for this question. The yes, you're right. I mean, the IRR, this institu institutional resource regime framework, plays an, an important role in my research. The framework has emerged in in the research group of uh, Peter Knöpfel. He is a political scientist, also with a law background, and he he is one of the pioneers of uh, the analysis of environmental policies in Switzerland and uh, abroad. I joined uh, his group a few years after the first ideas uh, on the IRR emerged. And my initial contribution was to uh, publish the framework in an international journal. And I mean, you're right, I kept working uh, together with colleagues uh, on this framework and it's at the background of most of my research um, activity always uh, although it's not always explicit the, the main idea is is quite simple first we observed that uh, scholars in environmental policy analysis hardly acknowledge the existence of property and property rights and on the other side, we observed that many institutional economists use the language of property rights, but the state is only present in a very abstract way. So the, the framework basically brings both together. It postulates that in order to understand the way people use resources, you have to analyze the relationship um, you have to, to uh, analyze both the relationship of property and uh, dedicated public policies. Property is not enough. Public policies are not enough. It's the interaction of both that uh, matters. And then the framework has you know, additional concepts like coherence and uh, extent to make predictions on the potential of a regime to contribute to sustainable resource uses. There is one other concept that I uh, find quite useful. It's called um, the localized regulatory arrangement, LRA, localized regulatory arrangement. 
it post the framework postulates that these localized regulatory arrangement emerge out of the attempt of resource users to compensate for insuffi insufficient or cr contradicting regulations. So when you use a resource and you have contradictive incentives coming from different public policies, like use policies or protection policies, or between you know different policies uh, which say different things, or between property rights and policies, then there is room for self-organization and resource users can try to come up with their own solution based on self-organization. They're usually first informal, and sometimes these arrangements also get formalized. I think this connects quite nicely with the literature on, on, the, on the commons. Could you give us an example of these localized regulatory arrangements, these LRAs? There are there are many of them. I would say there there is always an LRA because uh, the the rules such as they are formulated um, in in the law are general, and in the end these rules need to be translated or converted in the language of the property rights. In the end, they need to have an impact. Now, I'm of course, I'm talking about uh, policies with a spatial impact, but many policies have a spatial impact. In the end, you need to uh, convert them. Uh, and, and, and planning is a major policy in that sense. You need to, con to convert or translate the logic of the planners into the reality of the landowner. And often uh, this, this needs some uh, discussion. You need to come up with some agreement. And uh, in much of today's planning practices, you uh, use localized plans, district plans, Sondernutzungspläne in German, uh, that are basically the result of a negotiation between the planners and the different landowners on a given area. So this would be an example of a localized regulatory arrangement. That's really interesting. As as I understand it in your work, questions about power are also really interesting to understand these regulatory arrangements. Um, how, how does the IRR help you to make power more visible? I think that understanding the rules of the game give you an idea of the legal power of specific actors. Some resource users are protected by very robust norms. This is uh, typically the case with property rights. They protect the interests of the property rights holders. Their interests are then very well protected. Other users, other users of resources for example, you know the those who go to the mountains to enjoy the scenic landscape, for example, they can only count on a very weak protection of their uses. So in Western countries, the law is an essential source of power. You can look at formal institutions and analyze the power that is embedded in them through the protection of specific interests against others.
Some interests are structurally better protected than others. Power is embedded in the way rules are formulated. But this is not the whole story, of course. Actors also have some leeway. They can strategically activate some rules and not others. This is, for example, what happens when a conservation organization buys a plot of land to prevent uh, development. They can try to shape these localized regulatory arrangements in such a way that their interests are better taken into account. This is what happens in urban commons, for example. They can also try to you know, introduce new legislation. This is what happens through citizen initiatives. So uh, I think it's important to look both at the structures and agency to understand who has the power to access and use resources. Now, this is just a brief description of legal power, the power that you have when your interests are protected by the law. It's, it's a very important source of power in liberal democracies, but of course, uh, there are other dimensions of power, which also play uh, an important role. Money, information, political support, even violence, just just to name a few. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's a very interesting point. And you mentioned the, um, the power of knowing the rules that come go along with knowing the rules of the game. Um, um, there is a, a great difference, I guess, in, in the capacity of different actors to to actually, first of all, know uh, the law, the rights that exist. And then uh, even if they know or have a sense of, of certain rights, um, then also the, the question of uh, to what extent they are able to mobilize the law and the whole legal apparatus uh, in order to enforce these rights. And I think that's an uh, a, a very interesting and important perspective that also accounts for um, the the very different uh, access to 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 legal uh, to the legal system uh, within society, you know, depending on the actors groups. Uh, yes. Yes, and of course, this is also dependent on how the law itself is formulated. Is it open for this adaptation or is it so closed that the groups appropriating the law or interpreting the law don't even have the chance to really do much about it? No? So I think there are quite interesting dimensions here to also think about. Um, I introduced in the, in the beginning that we wanted to also think a bit beyond Switzerland and um, the institutional resource regime, as I've initially understood it, is based on a reading of Western or, say, liberal institutions. But you may also mention your work in Ghana, and uh, I'd like you, I'd like you to, to say a bit more about how this framework could apply, or how we would need to adapt it to apply to southern conceptions of property and institutions. So, just in the more, most basic sense, like, does this apply? Does it help us? everywhere with different conceptions of property um, and maybe you could use Ghana and your work in Ghana as an example. 
yes, I, I totally agree with your observation. The uh, This framework builds on the Western understanding of the state, which uh, regulates resource uses through public policies and the protection of uh, of property rights. And the question is, you know, does this model uh, apply to the South? Uh, I think that the nation state is a form of organization that conquered the whole world through colonization, um, etc. I'm, I'm there very much in line with the political scientist Jean-Francois Bayard, who uh, defends that even if the state is uh, weak, uh, absent, or corrupt, there is a whole literature, you know, on, on weak states, etc. So even in this situation, the state plays a structuring role. Even in a situation where actors deliberately choose not to play by the rules, they do it against uh, the rules and therefore they indirectly acknowledge them. So I think it's 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 reasonable to think that the state uh, through its public policies also plays an important role in Africa. And so do property rights, which are pushed forward by land titling initiatives promoted by the World Bank and other international institutions and carried over by national governments and local elites. So, uh, but, you know, simultaneously, the, the IRR is only a frame, framework. It basically puts forward some variables and it can also be complemented by others if we need more. Is the state variable important in the South? Yes, I think. Is the public policy variable important? Yes. Uh, is uh, the property rights variable important in Ghana? Yes. Is our localized regulatory arrangement important? Yes. But still, we added, you know, some some more variables in our uh, model. For example, we also more directly focus on informality. I think it's a topic that you know quite well, uh, Hannah. Uh, we maintain that uh, informal rules appear and sometimes even uh, thrive in the gaps left between poorly implemented formal rules. So this is, this is not to say that informality does not play a role um, in the North either, but in the South, you might be in a better situation to observe it. I think informality arises both from non-compliance with the law, but also from non-implementation of the law. And both phenomena uh, also exist in the North. So, you know, let's see if this framework uh, brings some added value in the South. I think these research projects are, are still ongoing. You previously mentioned the importance of custodian use of the land um, by the chiefs, if I understood it right, of 
the land you look at in Ghana. So how does how does these kind of use frameworks play out um, in in the ERR, or how do you account for them? In in the in our research project in in Ghana, we 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 uh, deal with three kinds of of uh, you know legal norms, not only two. So we still have the the public policy dimension that protects the public interest. We have the the property right dimension, property title, that protects the private interest. But we we also have the customary law dimension that uh, protects the group's interest. So that's a way to to take to try to you know uh, take into account this um, complexity. I think that even in non-democratic, you could call them predatory uh, state. The distinction between public policies and property right makes sense. However, it does not allow us researchers to uh, understand resource use or regulation because the power of the law is weak. Without the rule of the law, without uh, as a Rechtsstaat, other source of power play an important role, violence, money, etc. So there the, the the IRR and the study of legal power is not is not really, I mean, so is of little interest. But that's not the case in, in, in Ghana. Uh, I think in indigenous property claims can be captured uh, by such a framework. Uh, if this indigenous group organized politically, if they take part in a political process, if they try to obtain recognition from formal institution, if they, you know, create commons initiatives, etc. So if they play this game, then yes, we can we can capture capture that. If if they remain outside of the of the domain of of the law of of you know of legal power then then the, the IRR is of little interest. Let's move to Switzerland. Uh, uh, the focus of, uh, I guess, the greatest uh, amount of, of your work and um, also an interesting case study uh, within our, our, our series uh, in which we've already gone through uh, a, a diversity of of different uh, contexts and um, and look at uh, the property regime in Switzerland. And uh, to start off, uh, we'd be interested in hearing you uh, give us maybe like a very brief historical account of how the Swiss property regime has developed over the past uh, centuries and uh, also maybe specifically how communal land regimes, commons uh, have played out historically and what what their legacy is today. Okay, yes, this is a, a tough one, right? I'm not a historian of, of law. I can try to, to give a, a, a simple overview and maybe a few milestones. I, I already, great. Yeah, I, I mentioned the, the plural dominia uh, of, of the Middle Age, characterized by a multitude of rights and duties defined on a single plot. 
the the transition from the middle uh, age to uh you know to a modern state did not uh, take place you know overnight so the the, the fall of the uh, ancien regime in in France in 1789 did not lead to uh, the immediate disappearance of feudal rights in Switzerland even after the the Helvetic Republic and uh, its centralized government imposed by Napoleon. So uh, after the French Revolution, <clears throat> we have uh, in Switzerland the Helvetic Republic, and then it, it, it just lasts five years, as we know. Then in, in, in 1803, uh, Switzerland is transformed again into a confederation, a confederation of sovereign states, which all have their constitution and they all also have their particular understanding of property. They have their own civil codes. And it took more than a hundred years after the fall of the Ancien Regime, after the French Revolution uh, for, for Switzerland to unify its understanding of uh, property. This was done by Eugen Huber, is basically uh, the father of the Swiss uh, Civil Code of 1907. The, the Swiss Civil Code is, is more than a compilation of the cantonal codes. It's uh, inspired by the German Civil Code and also by the French Civil Code. And here I think it's quite interesting because the civil, uh, the, the German civil code uh, gives much more room to collective forms of ownership than its French counterpart. And so in Switzerland, we uh, tended to find a balance between the two. But what we observe over you know, this century, so the 19th century, is the progressive centralization of, uh, of civil law and the decline of collective forms of property. Collective forms of property, I mean, common property uh, is the exception to the rule uh, today. Typical uh, common property institutions such as the Alpine corporations which are called Almend in, in German, and other forms of organizations going back to the Middle Age are, uh, are still there, but they are codified in, in cantonal civil code, not in the Swiss civil code. I think we still have one important article that remains uh, uh, from collective forms of property in Switzerland. It's the article 699, which guarantees the access to all forests and uh, pastures to the population. So even if you have a forest with a fence around it, even if the owner fence out uh, its plot of land, you uh, are allowed to cross the fence to collect mushrooms or berries or enjoy the scenic landscape. So this collective dimension directly comes from the Middle Age and is still there in the civil code today.
And if I understand it right, this means that because the cantonal level is regulating um, to some extent these commons or almende, that we have a difference in how they're lived out or the the prominence or power of the commons in the different cantons. Could you give an example of a canton where there's a particular influence still still of the commons? Or where where the commons play a greater role? Um, this touches, I think, a bit of a, another question. Uh, you are talking about the legal form of the commons. Now, I'm, I was referring to these commons that, you know, come, come out of the Middle Age and perpetuated through the centuries. These commons, to some extent, uh, still exist today, and they are uh, basically uh, acknowledged by, by cantonal civil codes, not the federal one. This means that there might be differences among the different cantons. But those are the old commons uh, that you find in the Alps, the corporations, etc. I think now if we uh, talk about new forms of commons, usually they don't rely on these on these old uh, on these old legal arrangements. Yeah, maybe could you talk about the new forms of urban commons and how they have how they relate to this current uh, Swiss property regime as it is in existence uh, today and maybe like give us some context about like how these new new forms of commons new forms of urban commons um, are being contested or what role they play and how they also in turn relate to uh, public and private uh, land? I mean, are these at, at all territorial commons? So, as I just said, uh, Switzerland, we observe in Switzerland the disappearance of common property. Uh, simultaneously, um, you know, Switzerland is a, is a country with very strong property rights. In that sense, Switzerland is often compared to the United States. And what, what does that mean, strong property rights? It means that there are a limited number of situations where expropriation is possible. It means that expropriation is always compensated. This is the guarantee of property. And then compensation uh, takes place at at market value, so it's it's expensive. That that's that's you know the the overall pattern. So strong private property rights, and does that leave uh, some room to a collective form of um, ownership? I mean, we need to, we need to de to decide or define what we talk about when we mention the the commons here uh, to be sure that we are on the same page uh, and i like to distinguish between old and new commons although uh, i acknowledge that this distinction is often a bit simplistic but i would say the commons that you were referring to hannah in your previous question are the old commons there are those studied by elinor ostrom 
and they developed initially independently of the state and its public policies. And as we just uh, discussed, these forms of organization, they still play a role in Switzerland, especially in the mountains. Some uh, are still very powerful, but the vast majority of them uh, are not. In an article that we wrote uh, a decade ago, I think, uh, on these comments, we uh, make the point that the surviving ones, the powerful ones, are, are those who were able to find uh, a role in public policies. If they get acknowledged, uh, if they get an acknowledgement, an official acknowledgement for the management tasks that they do, then they have a chance to uh, perpetuate. And then there are the other uh, commons, which are sometimes called the new commons. And to me, this is slightly different. I think in my understanding, the, the new commons, they're not necessarily long-term oriented. I think there are more grassroots, collective forms of organization. And their main objective is to reclaim collective uses of a resource that became privatized or that is in danger of becoming privatized. I think that the new commons play an important role in, in transition phases where, where you know, new arrangements are being discussed. Now, if they succeed and if they are able to maintain collective uses, uh, they can either turn into a more permanent structure that might not even that might be something else than a common, or they can disappear. So I think this kind of commons they play an important role in cities, in connection with housing, with temporary uses, with green spaces, um, etc. But it's it's another object. So could you could just give a couple of uh, empirical examples of of these urban commons that you have in mind? I mean, there are, there are uh, initiatives that we observe uh, quite often. I think uh, we had a case study recently in the in the city of Bern, where uh, a form of collective structure took over an area that was being redeveloped. Uh, and then had uh, received basically a mission from the city to take care of a plot of land to develop a park for the neighborhood. And then they, they did it quite successfully, but um, in the uh, end, the city, when the city saw that it was working, took over the management of the park. So in that transition phase where the city was not sure yet about the future of the area when the city had to convince the inhabitant was trying to create some dynamics there, uh, the, the commons organization secured the management of the resource, but then, you know, disappeared. So this is not the long-term oriented commons that you find in the Alps. 
I think with this topic um, and this example you just brought, we arrived a bit at the kind of question of current conflicts around land and land use. And at the beginning, you already set out to describe the possibilities of planning on the one hand and the guarantee of property in tension with one another as property being more, more stable um, and individualized often and planning being kind of changing and shifting according to public policy. Could you give us a bit of an introduction into what are currently the most interesting political contestations and debates that stem from these tensions? So I think your question relates back to the interaction between planning uh, as a public policy and uh, property. And this connects, I think, well with the topic of this uh, discussion and the, the interaction between the two. You know, when planning uh, was introduced, it raises a big question and uh, it also raises raised a lot of resistance at the center of this question is the the issue whether zoning which is part of planning so whether zoning is a form of expropriation through zoning you basically uh, limit the freedom of the landowners, right, to develop their plot. If your plot uh, is located in the agricultural zone, then you lose your uh, right to build a house, for example. So many were afraid that land use planning would, would infringe too much on property rights. And in, in Switzerland, this discussion took place in the 60s. It resulted in the simultaneous introduction of the, uh, so introduction in the, in the constitution, in the federal constitution, uh, the introduction of the guarantee of property and of uh, a land use planning article. It's quite interesting because guarantee, um, Property had, had, had always been guaranteed. It was just not there. There was no specific article in the constitution, but in practice, uh, property was guaranteed. But because people were scared of planning, they introduced an article on the guarantee of property simultaneously. So the, this shows uh, how land use planning was perceived by many as a threat. This is in 69, 1969. Then it took 10 years uh, to develop a federal planning law. And again, this is extremely long. This shows how delicate this issue was. It shows the fierceness of the debate between opponents and supporters of planning. So is uh, zoning a form of expropriation? If you uh, answer yes, this means that landowners need to be compensated. It would basically make uh, planning so expensive that it would totally paralyze it. But simultaneously, you also have to acknowledge that in specific cases, planning restricts 
the freedom of some landowners. So in Switzerland, it's basically the courts that finally had to find a middle way between uh, full compensation and the uh, absence of it. So this is just to show, uh, I think, this interesting tension between, between planning as a public policy and, uh, and the definition of property rights. And so now we've sort of talked a bit about this introduction and um, the 60s and 70s. How does that play out currently in contemporary debates around how to effectively plan Swiss cities at the moment? The problem is uh, today is, I mean, the, the big issue in planning today uh, is densification. We want to stop urban sprawl and uh, support the densification of the built environment. In uh, planning, you know, the, the typical strategy that you would use to promote densification is to come up with uh, new plants, new plants imposing higher uh, density. This is basically what, what planners do. But how can you make sure that these uh, plans get implemented. If the landowner uh, decides not to develop his or her plots, then nothing happens. It's hardly impossible to uh, force him or her because of the protection of property. So the planning objectives, uh, for example, densification, uh, does not get implemented. So what I find interesting today in planning is this uh, land policy uh, approach. Land policy is basically a strategy. It's a strategy that tries to provide an answer to uh, this problem. So it, uh, the land policy does not only take into account the planning its instruments, but also private law instruments. So property rights, public property rights, long-term easements, uh, contracts with landowners, public-private partnerships, non-monetary compensation, transferable, transferable development rights, etc. Those are all uh, instruments or tools in the planner's toolbox. And then the planner is basically the, the public actor that selects the tool, maybe combine them together with others in order in order to, to get things done, to get the plans um, implemented. And I think this way of conceiving planning in a more strategic way is quite uh, is quite interesting. Now, land policy, you know, is not new. It has a very long tradition in Europe. It was first implemented by left-wing cities. Uh, you can think about, you know, Red Vienna or Red Bologna or Red Zurich. Those are all municipalities who, uh, which uh, 100 years ago bought land and intervened in the land market to compensate for inequalities. What, what is interesting today is that we observe that, uh, that there is a renewal 
of uh, the land policy approach. And this renewal is to uh, connect, to be connected with new public management. So this is the, I think, the interesting twist to the stories, to the story. Uh, both of them obviously have a, a totally different uh, ideological background. Uh, you know, new public management is more the, the neoliberal understanding, and then the old the old land policy was more connected with left wing governments. But but both of them led to the reappearance of of land policy. This kind of strategic approach to land also mobilizing public property and public intervention in the land market. I think this is quite of an interesting discussion that's happening today in connection with densification. Now talking about densification, um, and I'm also interested to just in a minute hear a bit more about these new approaches to land policy. Um, but densification, I mean, has used to be something that stood in that represented questions of sustainability. And I think in Swiss cities today, it's increasingly standing for displacement, um, given that it's been used to renew housing, to um, really cancel out tenants. So these new land policy strategies, do they also offer possibilities to combat displacement and to regulate the market in such a way that it also provides possibilities for building more social housing, for being more inclusive in cities? And if I can also add on this, maybe like whether there's uh, this this uh, a shift towards land policy uh, strategy is also indicative also of uh, a shifting political uh, yeah. forces that are behind uh, pushing for this strategy. I agree with your observation that uh, densification often uh, leads to you know new building to improving the existing building stocks and uh, therefore is automatically connected to rising prices, housing, rising prices of housing. This uh, is a big problem and uh, you know it contributes to make the housing resource more expensive in Switzerland. What we have uh, observed in, I think, in the last decade in uh, uh, Switzerland is that in all major cities, there were popular initiatives to try to find a solution to the rising housing prices. So popular initiative trying to promote affordable uh, housing. The, the central state brought back in connection with housing policies and the responsibility now is on the shoulders of municipalities. And we observe a lot of creativity, different solution be, being promoted in different municipalities all over uh, Switzerland. All of them basically call uh, for a better regulation of the land market. So in the end, impact also uh, uh, property rights, more or less directly. One solution that is uh, often proposed is the support 
of the public hand to uh, to cooperative, but that's not the only tool. I think maybe we can discuss a bit of the cooperative because uh, we were already having this discussion on the on the commons. Uh, Switzerland has a very long tradition of uh, housing cooperative. It's a model that is um, very successful in uh, Switzerland. And this might first appear a bit as a paradox because uh, cooperatives are non-profit organization. So they're uh, basically taking out the land of a, of a, out of a of profit generating objective. And in, in that sense, they uh, basic, basically contribute to the decommodification of the land or to a partial decommodification of the land. How is it to be under, understood that housing cooperatives are so successful in a country like uh, Switzerland? And I think the, I think we uh, this was the focus of a of a previous uh, article. I think. Cooperative basically uh, are a solution that can be supported by the left wing and the right wing parties. They please the right wing parties because they are not a public organization. You know, public housing in Switzerland is is almost a taboo. And uh, on the other side, they please the left-wing parties because you know they uh, connect with self-organization. They are very equalitarian in the sense that they, there is this strong one-person, one-vote principle at the core of their management. So this is the reason why cooperatives are so successful and uh, are thriving in uh, Switzerland. Cooperative can only thrive uh, on public land. And this brings us back to the discussion on property. Uh, cities who own a lot of land, like uh, uh, Zurich, but also Biel, also have a lot of uh, housing cooperative that they support, you know, through uh, providing the land and then defining long-term ground leases for them. So, so that they can, uh, you know, play their role as provider of, of affordable housing. Thank you for these uh, interesting insights. Maybe as a concluding uh, question, um, what do you think uh, other countries could usefully learn from Switzerland in relation to property regimes and public policies related to land or specifically urban land? Yes, thank you very much for this question. I think it's an it's an interesting one. Uh, first, please uh, let me say that it's always tricky uh, to export solutions from one country um, to the other, but I think it could be an interesting thought experiment to think about that. So. I think there is one thing uh, that we can be uh, proud of in uh, in in Swiss planning law 
it's the strict separation between building land and uh, agricultural land. We, uh, wh why, why do I say that? I think it's interesting because uh, this uh, separation uh, leads to uh, a partial decommodification of the agricultural zone. Uh, the agricultural land is protected by the federal law on uh, rural land. This means basically that agricultural land cannot be sold to non-farmers. And this has a direct effect on the price of agricultural land. You partially remove agricultural land out of the regular land market. So I think it's quite interesting to observe that agricultural land, agricultural land is partially taken out of the land market. And if you think about, you know, uh, another part of the Swiss territory, which is uh, forest, so forests too, is somewhat taken out of the land market. So the forests are also strongly decommodified in uh, uh, Switzerland. We already mentioned this article 699 that guarantees you know, access of everybody to the forest. But we also need to know that the forests are mostly in public hand. They are not managed for profit. And simultaneously, they're all, all they're also strongly protected. You're not allowed to, uh, you know, clear the forests in Switzerland. Once a piece of land is acknowledged as a forest, you don't have the right to destroy it. So I think this is quite of an interesting observation that we can make about uh, land in Switzerland. All the forest land is strongly decommodified agricultural land is strongly protected and therefore also partially taken out of uh, a market logic. Taken together, uh, this is probably the majority of the area of Switzerland that is uh, taking out of a pure market logic. I think, I think this is quite of an interesting twist uh, in a country uh, like Switzerland, where property rights are otherwise very strongly protected. So I think this distinction between uh, agricultural land and buildable land is uh, uh, essential. Unfortunately, I must say, the, the parliament uh, over the last 20 years tended to water down this distinction uh, facilitating the development uh, in the agricultural uh, zone. I think uh, we should do the uh, opposite uh, to prevent urban sprawl and prevent low quality developments. And in many international conferences that I have visited, uh, you know, other countries are, are kind of jealous of this strong protection of agricultural land in Switzerland. 
as I was actually asking that question, I realized uh, that question should be also asked the other way around. Um, so now you you gave the account of what other countries could learn possibly from Switzerland, what's worthwhile considering. Um, what would you like Switzerland to learn from other countries or maybe cities in terms of property regimes and public policies related to land? You know, I have quite a few research uh, projects in uh, Africa, uh, presently in Ghana and in uh, Senegal. I also was co-authoring some publications about Ghana, uh, but still, it's difficult for uh, me to make, you know, comments on on a totally different social political setting like uh, uh, Ghana. I still uh, feel like an observer who can uh, learn something from these countries. And my interest is more to go to foreign countries to uh, learn something for my own country. Through the comparison, often I learn more uh, about Switzerland than uh, about uh, Ghana. I'm talking for myself. Of course, in these research projects, we have students, we have also local partners, etc. But myself, often I use the comparison to learn about Switzerland and to reflect on uh, things that we take for granted uh, in uh, Switzerland that we do not question anymore. And I think uh, going to uh, Ghana helps me to uh, ask questions about Switzerland. And here, a central question that I keep on asking myself is our connection with uh, land and uh, the, in particular, uh, the way it is mediated through uh, private property. I think it is uh, very interesting. I think we can learn from other systems where group property, common property, collective oriented forms of property are uh, more present than in Switzerland. And I think these are questions that may become even more relevant in the future because if we want to promote densification, we will have you know, more people living on a smaller piece of land. What does that mean uh, for the institution of property? How can we make sure that more people can have high quality living on a smaller plot of land? Does it mean more property or other forms of property? This is the kind of questions that I find particularly interesting and also inspiring when I go to other countries. Fabulous. Thank you so much for these inspirations that we also take along. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to talk to you about these interesting questions. Appropriate.
Diese Podcast-Reihe entsteht im Rahmen des Sonderforschungsbereichs Transregio 294 Strukturwandel des Eigentums und wird gefördert durch die Deutsche Forschungsgemeinschaft DFG unter der Fördernummer SFB TRR 294-1-424-638-267.